Uh, If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to Galatians chapter 3. I was looking at this last section. I was going to do it in two parts, but I decided, no, it's kind of all one sub-thought, so I'm going to just do it all in one shot, but uh, based on time, we may, I may have, just, may have been better off doing it in two parts, but we'll, we'll look at, we're going to look at verses 19 through 29, so we're going to finish chapter 3, Lord willing, this morning, but let's um, open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we can gather here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we know that Though we celebrate this day once a year, we know that each and every Sunday, Lord, is a celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we take this one day to perhaps focus more on the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we, we, we take a little bit of time, Lord, to focus on what it means that Christ is raised from the dead, what it means for us as your people how we can then live in light of the resurrection, Lord, knowing that as you have been raised from the dead, you will return in glory at the end of the age. So, Lord, we pray for this day. We pray for those who will be coming to our service this morning, that they will be edified and blessed. We pray, Lord, most of all, that your name will be exalted and that Christ will be lifted high. Lord, we do pray for the family of Mark and Barb Bailey, in the passing of his father, Jim. We pray for your comfort to be among the family. We pray for safety as family will be traveling to Des Moines, Iowa for for the funeral uh, arrangements and the service. We pray, Lord, that your comfort from the Spirit will come upon them and encourage them in this time of mourning. May they mourn as those, Lord, who have hope in the resurrection. Again, as we celebrate the resurrection, we know, Lord, that this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our future resurrection. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 19, reading through the end of the chapter. And of course, when we finish chapter 3, we'll be halfway done with Galatians. All you have is 4, 5, and 6, right? So Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary or a mediator. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, 
according to promise. Okay, so there you have it. The end of Galatians 3. And really, it's, it's the end of a, a part. I mean, really, chapters 3 and 4, again, are the heart of Paul's teaching in this book. Um, where he is really going to work on the idea of the law and works of the law, and how we are justified not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Um, and he's really just been hammering this idea home in chapter 3. Uh, again, the reason being because you've got people coming into these churches here trying to force the Galatian Christians that they needed to abide by certain works of the law, that they needed to uh, tack on, if you will, um, part of the Jewish uh, ceremonial law, circumcision, dietary laws, and so on and so forth. And as we've been arguing all throughout uh, Galatians, you know, we say that you know, if Jesus plus nothing equals everything, then Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you add anything to Christ, you lose the gospel. If you add anything to the finished work of Christ, you make that null and void in your life. You are essentially, anything you add to it essentially says, I don't need the finished work of Christ. I can do this on my own. So we, we are, Paul is very, very adamant here to make sure we don't add anything to the gospel. Uh, if, if you do, you don't have a gospel. That's why he says, is what he says in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He's very, very uh, adamant about this. You are turning to a different gospel. And he says, not that there is another one, but you are, you are listening to a distortion, a, a perversion of the gospel. And after having kind of given his theme statement in chapter 2, verse 16, he's expounding on it in chapter 3. So as we get to the section here now... Um, He's finishing this part where he talks about the law and the promise, how the law came, the law does not annul the promise. That's what we saw last time. Uh, you can't annul a promise that was made and a covenant that was ratified by God. Uh, the law comes afterwards, as we saw, 430 years afterwards. And because of that, it cannot annul, it cannot make void God's promise. God made a promise, and if... And he uses the example of a human covenant. He's like, if, if a human covenant is, is solid once it's been ratified, can't be changed, can't be added to, can't be annulled, well then how much more so God's covenant with man? So the law which comes later does not annul this. It does not make void the covenant. It does not make void the promise. So as we come into this, passage, we're going to say, well, the question is going to arise, why then the law? That's what he says in verse 19. So just like what Paul does in other letters, particularly the uh, letter to the Romans, where often he says something, and then he kind of anticipates what his, uh, his, his interlocutor would, would respond. He anticipates an objection. He then answers the objection. So everything Paul's been saying up to this point seems to sort of say, well, you know, the law is no good. So then you can ask the question, well, well, then why did we have the law? And he's going to answer that question in the passage we're going to look at this morning. And just so uh, you know, I'm going to lay the cards on the table here. 
the purpose of the law was to point us to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. That's what we're going to see in this passage, that the purpose of the law was to point us to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. So we're going to look at that, and you only have two points. doesn't mean you're getting out of here any sooner. Two points. But again, the purpose of the law was to point us to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. So first we're going to look at verses 19 through 24. Why, or the purpose of the law? Why the law? And again, as I said, so far in Galatians, Paul's been very focused on showing how works of the law cannot justify. We saw that, right? Chapter 2, verse 16, works of the law. And by works of the law, again, just as a reminder, works of the law is kind of a technical term Paul is using here. It, It refers mainly to circumcision, but also every other ceremonial aspect of the law. In other words, everything that you would do under the Old Covenant to be... To, you know, that was prescribed, I should say, in the Old Covenant. The sacrifices, circumcision, dietary laws. All right, they focus mostly on circumcision, but it's, it, enco- it encompasses all of this. Those are works of the law. So we find out in chapter 2, verse 16, they cannot justify. In chapter 3, verse 7, they cannot make you a son of Abraham. In chapter 3, verse 10, they put you under a curse. And in chapter 3, verse 17, they do not annul the promise. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, they do not deliver the inheritance. So you've got, you know, Paul's been really, like I said, focusing on works of the law. They cannot justify. They don't make you a son of Abraham. They put you under the curse. They they do not annul the promise. And they do not deliver on the inheritance. So then verse 19 leads to the question, Why then the law? Why was the law given? If it doesn't do any of these things, then why the law? I mean, I think it's a fair question. It's a fair question. Why then the law? And again, by the law, we're talking the Mosaic law. Now, word law is one of those words that can be that can mean a lot of things in in a biblical context, okay? It can refer to specifically just the Ten Commandments, the law of God. It can refer to the entire Pentateuch. The five books of Moses are often called the law. Uh, it can refer sometimes to the entire Old Testament, the law. Or it refers to specifically the Mosaic law given in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. You know, the, all, the, all of the stipulations of the Mosaic law. And you can sort of break down the Mosaic law into three components, if you will. There's a moral aspect to it, there's a judicial aspect to it, and then there's a ceremonial aspect to it. So the moral aspect to it is summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's God's moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's the law that Paul says in Romans 2 is written on the hearts of every person because we are created in his image. And it is, it's, again, summarized in the Ten Commandments and then further summarized by Jesus when he says... The law can be summarized as this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And this is all the law and the prophets, he will say. Now, the judicial aspect of the Mosaic law, those, those parts of the law 
that sort of govern the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as a theocratic nation under God. And then the ceremonial aspects of the law would be those parts of the law that govern their religious worship, the, the rules for sacrifices, how, what kind of sacrifice you're to bring, how you're to bring it, when you're to bring it, what the priest is supposed to do with the sacrifice, so on and so forth. Now, it's not like you can read through the Pentateuch and, you know, there's a part which says, now this is the moral law. Now this is the judicial law. It's, it's kind of like all incorporated together, but, but theologians and, and scholars have sort of said, you know, there's these three aspects of the law. So why then the law? Why then the Mosaic law? Um, we're going to get to that in a moment. But I do want to do a brief, uh, and I think I kind of already summarized it, but unfortunately our confessional standards do not have as detailed a section of this as the Westminster does. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, you don't have to write this down, but you may, maybe the, the reference if you want to. The Westminster Confession of Faith, because you can find this online, chapter 19 has a section of the law of God. And it, there's like six or seven articles to it. I'm not going to read it. But to summarize it, basically it says that um, in section one it talks about how God gave Adam a law, a commandment. He gave him a commandment to not eat of the tree. And then he says after the fall... The law still continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and it was delivered then by God on Mount Sinai. So that, that law, the law of God written on our hearts, was then given by God to the Israelites on Mount Sinai in a written form on two tablets of stone. Uh, and then it talks about how there's the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. Uh, Westminster also talks about how the moral law is something that continues to be binding on us, because it, it's, it's something that goes beyond just um, the, the existence of Ju uh, Israel as a nation. The moral law is something that binds us to God. We are bound to obey God. We are bound to obey God. So the moral law sort of supersedes all of that. The judicial and the ceremonial aspects of the law, in a sense, have been fulfilled by Christ uh, in his life and work and so on. But you've got these, this idea of the law, and, and the question is, why then the law? Well, Paul says that in, verse, in the rest of verse 19. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Better, that's a bad translation. It should say mediator. Uh, it was put in place through angels by a mediator. So the law was added because of transgressions. And though we have the law written on our hearts, we're still fallen, right? Uh, just because the law of God is written on our hearts, because we are made in the image of God, doesn't mean we inherently keep the law. We're fallen. We're, we're, we're experts at self-rationalization, right? We're experts at sort of finding the loopholes in the law and, 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 and even ignoring our consciences. Our conscience may say that's wrong, but we can ignore our conscience to the point where, as Paul will say later in his epistles, we can sear the conscience, you know, kind of burn it and, and, and make it insensitive. So the law then here reveals to us God's holy and righteous standards. And it acts as a mirror to show our sins. 
Here's another thing. I've mentioned this before regarding the law. So you have the three aspects of the law, moral, judicial, ceremonial. But we also talk about three uses of the law. Okay, I may have mentioned this before. Now, the technical terms, if you want these technical terms, the first use of the law is the pedagogical use. Okay, you're like, what does that mean? Well, it means the, the teaching use of the law. You know, pedagogy is just a word for teaching. There's the civil use of the law and then the normative use of the law. So pedagogical, if you want to know how to spell that, it's P-E-D-A-G-O-G-I-C-A-L. Pedagogical, civil, normative. Like, well, what do those mean? Well, I use examples. So there's mirror, there's curb, and then there's a ruler, okay? So the mirror, the pedagogical part of the law is the law that reveals to us our sin. It's a mirror. When we look at the law, we see that we are lawbreakers. We see that we fall far short of the law. It shows us our sin. I've mentioned this before. The law gives you no power to overcome it or to fulfill it. The law just says, here's the standard. That's it. And you look at it and you say, yep, that's the standard, and I fall far short. Or if you're fallen and you're given to self-rationalization, then you're like the rich young ruler. I have kept that since my birth. You can look, you know, you can self-rationalize. But, but the law is a mirror. It shows you what God's standard is. And when you look at it with eyes of faith, you will recognize you fall far short. Civil use of the law, or as a, I call it as a curb. So it keeps you from kind of going off the street. The curb is there to keep you on the street. And it's used... In the sense that the law has use in the civil arena as, as, a, as a way to um, curb sin, right? Romans 13 talks about how this, the civil magistrate has the power of the sword to enforce uh, justice and righteousness. Now, it doesn't always do that, okay? We know that. But the point is that that's the point of the civil government. It uses natural law, if you will, the, the law written on our hearts to curb sin, and then the rule, or the ruler, the normative, okay, norm is just a Latin word for ruler, okay, if you want to draw a straight line, you use what? A ruler, okay, the ruler is as a guide for the Christian to live in his life, so if you want to know how to, how to love God and love neighbor, use the ruler of the law, it helps you draw that straight line, so the three uses of the law, mirror, curb, ruler, Now here, Paul is using the aspect of a mirror, where he says, it was added because of transgression. It was added to show you sin, what sin is, until the offspring. Now, who's the offspring again from last week? Jesus. Just give the Sunday school answer there. You're okay. All right. What is this picture, Johnny? Well, it looks like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus, because we're in Sunday school. (laughs) So the law was given until the offspring, until Jesus should come to whom the promises have been made. In a nutshell, the law then shows us our sin and our need for Christ. And then Paul goes on to show that the law was mediated. It was given through a mediator. Um, Acts 7.53, Hebrews 2.2 suggests that the law was was given by God through angels to Moses. Um, But it was mediated. Moses, who was the mediator of the Old Covenant, was, the, in a sense, the, the go-between 
right? God gives the law to Moses. Moses delivers the law to the people. He is the mediator. So the law, given to show you transgression, given to, to um, guide you until the offspring should come, given through a mediator to Moses. Then you get verse 20, which is very, very weird. Now, a mediator implies more than one, but God is one. You're like, what does that mean? Well, it literally reads, if you were to translate the Greek literally, and the mediator is not of one, but God is one. That's, That's the literal, a woodenly literal translation of that verse. And the mediator is not of one, but God is one. Again, I ask, what's going on? This is a verse that has puzzled commentators and scholars for quite some time. Now, I often find it helpful to look at various translations of the English to see what they have to say. And there's one translation. It's called the New Living Translation. It's, a, it's not a paraphrase. It's, it uses a style called dynamic equivalence, which means it tries to get... The, it tries to uh, it, uh, translate the verse to give its meaning, not necessarily word for word. It tries to give a thought-for-thought thought translation. Um, I don't recommend it always, but sometimes it's helpful to consult that. And here, for this verse, the New Living Translation has this. It says, Now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. I was like, that's a lot of words, right? Considering that the original has, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So the New Living Translation is doing a little bit more interpretation here than just translation. I understand that. But I think it's getting at the thought of what's going on here. Because a mediator is what, in other words, you need a mediator in order to go between two different parties, okay? Moses was the mediator between God and man for the Old Covenant. What, the, what Paul is trying to say here is the promise didn't require a mediator. The promise was given by God directly to Abraham, fulfilled directly in Jesus Christ. God who is one, right? We believe God is one, one in essence, three in person, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. God promised Abraham, in you, through your offspring, the world will be blessed. The families of the world will be blessed. So I think that's what's going on there. So again, Paul is trying to draw this contrast between the law and the promise. The law required a mediator. The promise does not require a mediator. Now verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And there you get Paul's favorite negative, okay? Uh, In the original, it's may genoita, which means may it never be. I think that's how the New American Standard translates it. May it never be, or God forbid, (laughs) or as the ESV has here, certainly not. Um, It's the strongest negative. It's may it never come into existence. May that thought never come into existence. The law is not contrary to the promises. Why? Because the law never promised life. 
if, for, if there had been a law that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So again, we have to think about this again. It's, it, this is post-fall, right? Because you remember back in the garden, God, uh, Adam was able to obey. He just didn't obey. After the fall, we're not able to obey anymore. We are, we are fallen. We are uh, incapable of doing any good. We are incapable of doing anything righteous before God. So the law, does, we, we cannot earn righteousness by the law. The reason is because you have to keep the whole law. Right? That's what he says before. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. All of them. You have to have a 100% on this exam. It's, it's 100% or, or failure. 99% is failure. 100% is passing grade. And we cannot pass this. So there, the law cannot give you righteousness. It cannot give you life. So the, so the law is not, so it's not competing with the promise. The law, that's the point Paul's saying. It's, it's not contrary. It's not competing. It's not like there's two ways to salvation. One through the promise, the other through the law. Okay, it's like, okay, if you want to just rest in the promises, that's fine. I'm going to earn it through the law. No, this, it's not contrary. It's not contrary. And then verse 22. Now, you may have different translations here. Mine says, but the scripture imprisoned. I like that. Um, New, New King James, I think, says kept under guard. Um, or that's in verse 23. My bad. Um, it, it's, it's to be imprisoned. <laughs> it's kind of the idea there. The scripture imprisoned everything or encompassed, really. You can say it sort of like encompasses, it encloses everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now here Paul's using scripture to refer to the law here. But it's like the law, what it does is it, 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 it holds you under its penalty. It holds you under its penalty. It, in, it encloses you within the confines of the law, which is you do this or die. <laughs> right? If you do not do this, you die. You are under this curse. And it holds you there. Until the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It imprisons all under sin. It confines us all under sin. So that's, in a sense, what we're seeing here is the true purpose of the law. It, 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 the weight of the law comes upon you and you recognize, I cannot keep this law. I cannot do anything about this. I have, to, it, it, I have no way of earning any kind of righteousness via the law. So it holds you, it imprisons you. And I think when you truly understand the depth and the weight of the law, you will see your complete inability to keep the law. If you understand what the law truly says, if you understand the weight of it, if you can feel its burden on your shoulders, you will understand there's nothing I can do to keep the law. And then what does that do? It should drive you into the arms of Christ. It should drive you, or from an Old Testament perspective, it should drive you to the mercy of God. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Right, as David says in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O Lord. In sin did my mother conceive me. I have been wicked from the day of my birth. Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. It drives you to the mercy of God. 
And then Paul summarizes the argument in verses 23 and 24. I can flip my page now. Now before faith came, again, we were held captive. We were kept under guard. Uh, the word there, fureo, uh, to guard, to protect. It means kind of like to have, to be under a military guard, okay? Uh, so we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, that same word from verse 22, until the, until the coming faith would be revealed. The law stood as a, as a, as a, as a harsh taskmaster, if you will. It, it stood there with its demands. Do this or die. Do this or die. It just You're there. You're imprisoned. And then again in verse 24, it says, Paul then concludes, so then, the law was our tutor, our guardian. Uh, the word in the Greek is pedagogue, from pedagogical use of the law. Uh, our teacher, our schoolmaster, our guardian. It was the one who taught us. The law teaches us. You cannot keep the law. You must have faith. The law imprisons us. The law is our tutor, our schoolmaster, to teach and instruct us until the offspring of Christ, until the offspring, Christ, is revealed. So now we look at the fulfillment of the law in verses 25 through 29. Now, if you look at the beginning of verse 25, what do you see there? (laughs) If you haven't been here very long, what are my favorite words in the Bible? But, right. Of course, my favorite two words are right there in verse 25. But now. But now. I often like to say, if you, if you like to write in your Bibles, circle those words, but now. Because they often uh, signal a contrast. A stark contrast. Because the 25, the contrast of 25 is verse 23. So Paul says in verse 23, Now before faith came, and then in verse 25, but now that faith has come. Okay, so, and again, that idea of faith has come means that Christ is here. Christ comes. The one to whom the law was pointing, the one to whom the law was holding us in prison, keeping us under guard, instructing us, now he has come. Faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, no longer under a tutor. We no longer need the the. the the guardrails or the tutor of the law to point us to Christ because Christ is here now. That doesn't mean we're antinomian. There's that ruler aspect of the law, right? The law that guides us in our Christian living. But what he's saying here is that the law now no longer holds you in prison because Christ has come, the one who has fulfilled the law. That's why it doesn't hold you in prison anymore. That's why you're no longer under its curse. Because Christ has come and he has fulfilled it perfectly where we could not. The law has served its purpose. It brings us to Christ. Christ, having fulfilled righteousness through the law, removes the burden and the curse of the law from us. Removes the burden and the curse of the law from us. We are no longer under a guardian. 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's kind of what, if you remember, we were looking at John's gospel in the very beginning of John's gospel, chapter 1. In 
chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. You get this statement here. John is talking, this is his prologue, he's talking about the eternal word who has been made flesh and dwelt among us. He says in verse 12, but, so the contrast, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. So Jesus comes to the Jews, the Jews did not receive him. But then we find out in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. So here you've got this notion that the sons of God in the sense of being adopted are not, it's not something you can will, it's not something you can earn, it's not something you can work toward. It's something you have to accept by faith and then Christ then gives you the right, he gives you the privilege to be called a son of God. You get the same thing in Romans 8. In Romans 8, where Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, verse 14 and following. Paul there says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons and daughters. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. That's what the law is. The law is the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are sons by faith. Sons by faith. And that's what Paul here again says then in in Galatians, as we've just looked at. For as many of you as were, or sorry, uh, we are no longer under a curse, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Then verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now that idea there of baptism is, is suggesting the idea of union with Christ, which is symbolized, which is uh, sacramentalized, if I can use that as a word, um, through water baptism. Water baptism is the sign and the seal of the reality of our being baptized into Christ, our union with Christ. It's a sign and seal of that reality. And it's a glorious truth. If you are baptized with Christ Jesus, you have put him on. Think of, you know, in, in other words, Jesus Christ becomes like a cloak that covers you. A cloak of his perfect righteousness now covers you. You are a lawkeeper. Not because you have kept the law, but you have kept the law through faith in Christ. He has kept the law, and then when God looks at you, he sees the cloak of Christ covering you because you have been united with him, and he sees you as a lawkeeper. Romans 6, 3, and 4 talks about how if you were baptized into a death like his, you will be united to a, a resurrection like his, and you will be raised to newness of life. And then in verses 28 and 29, once you are united to Christ, all worldly distinctions disappear. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now when I say that all worldly distinctions disappear, it means that our identity is Christian. Right? Our identity is not, I'm male, I'm female. Our identity is not, I'm slave or free. My identity is not, I'm Jew or Greek. My identity is, I'm in Christ. And that supersedes, that transcends all of these other distinctions in the world that we separate ourselves by. Right? We are all separated. Nationality, racial, gender, uh, status, all these things. We use these as ways to separate people. But in Christ, those distinctions disappear. They all disappear at the foot of the cross. It doesn't mean that there's literally no male or female. Okay? It doesn't mean that gender distinctions disappear. It just means that in Christ, that is what supersedes your identity. That is what your major identity is. It's, it's in Christ. So there's no, like, I'm a this Christian, I'm a that Christian. It's, no, I'm a Christian, period, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, we, we like to do that with the word American, right? I'm African-American, I'm European-American, I'm a this American, a that American. It's like, what does that mean? You're either American or you're not, right? I mean, it's like, what you're, you're, by, if, you're, if you're modifying the word American, then you're the, really the modifier becomes more important. If you modify Christian with anything, then that modifier becomes more important. Your identity is in Christ. Now again, I, you know, others like to use this verse to sort of obliterate um, gender distinctions and so on. That's not what Paul's getting at here. Paul's getting at the point, is like, you are all one in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. You are united to Christ. You are Christian. You are a son or daughter of God. And then finally, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Why? Because... Jesus is Abraham's offspring, and we're in Christ. Thus, we are his offspring. And then we become heirs, heirs according to the promise. And that's going to play into the next section, because in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So we're going to look at that next time, Lord willing. But here, Paul then just finishes. It's like, you are heirs. If you are in Christ, you are an heir. And it's, again, that's nothing you can get through the law, The law does not deliver the inheritance. Only faith in Christ does. So just to bring this to a close, because we're running out of time. The law is not contrary to the promise. The law was a temporary guardian or tutor or schoolmaster to instruct the people for their need for Christ and to await the promise. Now the problem is in our flesh, we think we can keep the law. Right? That's... That's our fleshly motivation. Our fleshly motivation says we can keep the law. And the only way we can even justify that even remotely is if you sort of lower the law's demands and raise your own ability to keep them. Right? I referenced this a little while ago, but Luke 18, verses 18 and following, talks about the rich young ruler, and Jesus confronts this poor man, and he says, you know, the guy asks him, what must I do? to earn or to get salvation. And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And the man says, I have kept them from my youth. Right? So he had a, he had a diminished view of what the law actually demands, and he had an overinflated view of how he can actually keep the law. And Jesus quizzes him on it. He says, okay, 
you say you kept the law, then sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You know, and, and you know how the story goes. He, he leaves away sad because he had many possessions. So that's how we think in our flesh, though. You know, we think, well, I haven't murdered, right? We've talked about this before. Well, Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart, you've murdered. If you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Think about coveting, okay? Paul, Paul says in Romans 7, he says, I would not know what coveting meant until the law said, do not covet. And then all of a sudden, I found all kinds of covetousness in my soul. So, you know, that's what the law kind of does, right, to a fallen individual. The law excites the sin, right? I've used this example before where, you know, if you've got your lawn all nicely done and you put a little fence on it, do not walk on the grass, keep off the grass, that rule <laughs> triggers in your mind. It's like, how dare you tell me not to walk in your I'm going to walk all over the grass because I feel like it now. I'm going to stomp on it. I'm going to stomp on your grass. Kick up divots and stuff, you know. If I'm Fred, I bring my, my seven iron, just start, you know, whacking divots in the lawn, right? That, that's, that's how we see the law. All the law can do is show us how far we fall short of God's glory, right? Romans 3.23. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the law shows us that. If you look at it, correctly. It's an insurmountable barrier between us and God that only Christ can bridge. The good news, though, is that Jesus kept the law and that through faith we are justified and adopted into God's family. And then we become heirs, as Paul says here, heirs according to the promise. The promise that transcends all human distinctions and institutions and it becomes our identity in Christ. It is that identity in Christ is the only identity that truly matters.